Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Ottawa braces for the truckers' protest. Will it remain peaceful? More and more hospital and long-term care staff who are sick with COVID-19 are being asked to return to work early. We'll tell you about new standards for long-term care facilities. A Hamilton group is behind a much-needed boost for PCR tests. The Internet expected to play a big part in this year's provincial election campaign. And Tim Hortons and Special Olympics Canada team up on a special donut. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. The small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for each other. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. The trucker convoy is scheduled to make it to Ottawa tomorrow. And it comes as Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in isolation after coming into contact with someone with COVID-19. Coincidence? Mm, Some might be saying so. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. Joining us now is Amanda Connolly, National Online Journalist with Global News. And we say good morning to Amanda. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. What preparations are being made for tomorrow's protest? Well, there are certainly quite a number of preparations underway, and we certainly don't know all of them right now. Again, with any kind of protest of this size, whatever whatever the kind of cause is, there's always a certain aspect of the policing in that that is done behind the scenes that we don't know until it actually happens. But certainly we can say this is speaking up a lot of attention. There's been a very high priority here from um, police talking about this, looking at kind of all the possible angles here, particularly when it comes to the downtown core. I'm not sure if your listeners have really kind of ever been up to Ottawa here. We're not a huge city. The downtown core here is not that big, certainly not equipped for things like uh, a large number of transport trucks to be down here for any large period of time. And so there have been questions about, do we need things like emergency access routes for fire trucks, for paramedics and that kind of thing in case this is a prolonged event? So certainly a lot of questions taking place here over the, the kind of coming 24 hours as this all kind of comes together. But uh, really, really a high priority, I think, on, on trying to keep this peaceful and safe for everyone involved. Uh, we have heard anecdotal thoughts, uh, primarily on social media. I'm not sure if they're factual or not, that the governor general's residence will also be a focus of this protest. Have you heard anything about that? Yeah, this this is kind of uh, one idea that has been put out there by what appears to be some more fringe elements of this group. Again, there there are a number of uh, we've seen through some fantastic reporting that my colleagues have done, there are extremist elements that are latching on to this group. Um, we know that a number of them are, are among those really who have ideas around things like having this be Canada's own January 6th riot akin to what was seen in the Capitol buildings in the U.S. The question about the governor general, though, really is an interesting one because some, the, the fringe elements here are saying they're coming up to Ottawa. They have this, they call it a memorandum of understanding. They want to put before the GG and effectively have her overturn some of the government's rules around uh, vaccine mandates, uh, the, the whole kind of handling of COVID-19. That's not how our system of government works. That will not be happening. Uh, that's not how you get things overturned. The GG does not have that, that authority at all. Um, but again, there are security questions here, of course. We saw someone on the grounds of the governor, Gener- the, um, the governor general's estate uh, earlier in the pandemic who had a number of different, uh, you know, poli- police had to get involved in that. And so this really is I think, what people are watching for here is, is what the potential is for escalation and what the potential is for people to try and get into secure areas looking for public officials that, um, again, there there have been some concerns raised about the, the safety of things like MPs and, and, and 
um, other officials. And so that that really is kind of the backdrop for all of this right now. We're talking about the uh, Saturday trucker protest in Ottawa with Amanda Connolly, National Online Journalist with Global News. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, PC leader Aaron O'Toole has said that he will meet with the protesters tomorrow. Have any of the other leaders committed to doing so? No, uh, certainly uh, that that has not been a promise made by any of them. In fact, we've seen uh, pretty strong words offered by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, and NDP leader Jagmeet Singh as well, really focusing on what they they have kind of talked about as the more extremist and unacceptable elements in this convoy here. But as you mentioned there, uh, Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, has said that he will be meeting with truckers who are part of this convoy. He said he won't be meeting with the organizers, so we don't know exactly who from that convoy he will actually be meeting with or when or where. Um, those all remain questions that we've put to him and, and journalists are trying to get answers to at this time. But again, that's a bit of an about face for O'Toole. He had said earlier in the week that he would not meet with members of the convoy. Um, and again, this, so we're, we're really watching to see kind of what's, what, what is going to happen here. We have seen support, messages of support from some members of O'Toole's caucus for this convoy coming into town. And again, as we get a better sense and a clearer sense of what the tone of this is going to be, what role those extremist elements are actually going to play when they get into town here, we don't know that yet. And so that really will be, I think, the driving uh, question here for any politician who is going to meet with this group is, um, again, are, are they going to continue doing it, doing that and kind of following through those plans if we start to see some of the violence that police have said that they are concerned could be a possibility coming out of this. This convoy is rolling towards the capital. All the while, our Prime Minister is now in isolation, and I'm sure that some truckers uh, or those supporting this movement aren't buying the reason behind it. Yeah, so I mean, there have, this has certainly kicked off uh, some, some comments being made online by folks. Uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that he is isolating after being notified of a COVID exposure. Um, the Prime Minister's office has said that this, this was an exposure that happened after the press conference Trudeau gave uh, that he was notified to, pardon me, after the press conference that he gave on Wednesday coming out of a three-day caucus retreat. So uh, Trudeau saying he's took a rapid, he has taken a rapid test, it was negative, uh, and that he will continue to isolate for five days. So we are, again, we don't know kind of uh, what that exposure might have been, uh, but certainly this, this uh, we likely will not be seeing him in person for five days. It will be all virtual if there are comments and press conferences and things like that. Um, Look, I think that when you have these kind of groups coming up into town, they are there are often a lot of different elements in them looking for different kinds of signs and, and kind of uh, tones and, and interpretations of things that, that um, are going to kind of factor into whatever they're kind of hoping to get out of this. But for all, all we know right now and the information that we have in front of us at this moment is that the isolation is due to an exposure, not because of any kind of fear or concern of the convoy coming in. Well, as for the convoy, let's hope it remains peaceful. Uh, Amanda, thanks for joining us. Stay safe and uh, enjoy the weekend. You as well. Thank you. Amanda Connolly, National Online Journalist with Global News. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The uh, Omicron variant of COVID-19 has caused tremendous staff shortages at many companies and organizations uh, across this country, including hospitals and long-term care homes. But because of those staff shortages in the healthcare sector, some employees who were sick with COVID or were isolating because of a close contact, uh, some of them have been called back to work earlier than most. Michael Hurley is the president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Michael. 
Good morning, Rick. Uh, we've heard that uh, Hamilton Health Sciences has fired 178 employees for refusing to get the COVID-19 vaccine. I would imagine some, maybe most, are um, healthcare professionals. Your reaction to that? Well, I mean, uh, you know, those terminations have been challenged, and I'm I'm pretty confident that while people may not be able to work during the pandemic if they're unvaccinated, that the uh, legal action of terminating them will not be upheld by arbitration as we go down the road. Some of your members obviously working within Hamilton Health Sciences. Do these firings put more pressure on other workers who are still in the workspace? Well, I mean, the problem predates the vaccination uh, issue and the loss of workers because they uh, you know, they, they weren't vaccinated. Uh, before the pandemic, Ontario had the fewest staff of any province, uh, province's hospitals in Canada or of any country with a developed economy. And uh, as we have moved forward into the pandemic, you know, the, the weight of working under these conditions, which were hugely understaffed to begin with, and now uh, we're adding all the complexities of burnout and stress and, um, you know, uh, working extended shifts, not having vacation for two years in a row. These things are, um, you know, are causing the workforce to be to be stretched. And many people are, are thinking, uh, you know, of leaving. Um, so it, I don't believe the current staffing shortages are uh, linked so much to the uh, departure of people who weren't vaccinated as they are to the chronic understaffing that preceded the pandemic. I would imagine, though, that the firings at HHS, and it's not alone in this regard, just makes the situation worse, whether it's just the number of staff or the morale, um, you know, kick in the pants kind of uh, reaction from existing staff members. Well, I think, you know, uh, you know, staff members have been, you know, stressed, uh, you know, by many factors. And, you know, particularly uh, throughout the pandemic, we've had, you know, great difficulty in, in getting access to protective equipment uh, that, that would keep people safe. You know, we've, we've, uh, we've uh, you know, really struggled with that. Um, and now the practice of, of bringing people in who are still sick with COVID to work beside people who are who are healthy and, you know, with patients who are vulnerable. You know, it's these kind of public health measures that, um, you know, really demoralize people, I think, and make them feel that uh, the people in charge just don't have a clue in terms of protecting uh, patient safety or worker safety. And, and it really gets them down because they're working their hearts out. They're trying to, to trying to keep everything together uh, under tremendous pressure. And yet they feel the authorities uh, have really lost the thread here. It's all about protecting the patients, and and I think we're we're a bit lost in Ontario at the moment. Michael Hurley is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Hurley is the president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, the hospital division of CUPE here in Ontario. Are healthcare workers in this province being pressured or feeling the pressure to return to work earlier? Well, they are. I mean, you know, they they are, and of course, you know, we've got this dynamic where. In the hospitals, 50% of the workforce are part-time. In in long-term care, it's 60% or higher. And in home care, 75%. So part-time people 
aren't paid uh, beyond the three uh, legislated sick days uh, if they get COVID. So there's a, you know, economically people financially, they just can't, they just don't have options. These are not wealthy people. These are people who are struggling with multiple part-time jobs in order to be able to, to keep stuff together. So, I mean, they're driven by that very financial fact to go to work, which is one of the reasons so many people have been calling, not just for healthcare workers, but for people who work in grocery stores and pharmacies and, and factories to have 10 days sick leave so that they could actually be off sick. So people do come back to work, unfortunately, uh, you know, because they because they have to. And now we have this policy, which, you know, which it encourages uh, people to come back in high risk settings, uh, you know, which is deeply troubling, high risk settings. Um, and and, uh, you know, we're we're now dealing with that uh, in the Omicron variant. We only have about a minute. Is is this I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is this a dire situation? How would you describe it? Well, I think the staffing situation in Ontario hospitals and healthcare generally is dire. And I think, you know, we need to we need to face up to the fact that wages have been kept artificially low and people are leaving in despair of that for other work. That's that's a key factor. The work is un is undoable. Like it's just the workloads are too, too much. There has to be the addition of staff so that we can actually d- provide decent care to patients and residents in long-term care. That is at the heart part of the burnout that's driving people out of healthcare at the moment. We got to deal with those two factors, I think, to move forward. And I'm really hoping that we're going to. Michael, thank you for your time today and enjoy the weekend. Thank you very much, Rick. You too. That's Michael Hurley, president of the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. What should the future of long-term care in Canada look like? Public Review is now being launched on a new draft of the National Long-Term Care Services Standard. And we get a sneak peek this morning from Dr. Samir Sinha, Technical Committee Chair, Health Standard Organization's National Long-Term Care Services Standard. Dr. Sinha, good morning. Good morning. Well, what kind of standards are being put in place? Well, they're not being put in place right now. Right now, we are doing uh, the work to develop what the standards could look like. So we've been working for almost a year now, a committee of 32 um, experts, residents, uh, family members, um, to develop what the standards for long-term care should look like going forward in Canada. And yesterday, we announced that we are now going out for what we call public review. So we're inviting Canadians to look at the 183 statements, the 24 clauses, the 10 overall sections that really state what we think good, high-quality, long-term care should look like in Canada. The goal being that we're going to finalize these standards by the end of the year, and the federal government has pledged $3 billion to help implement these and other standards to improve long-term care in Canada. Does this draft include uh, the debates between nonprofit and for-profit care? We don't look at for-profit or not-for-profit because what we're really looking at is what should care look like in a home. And we talk about the importance of what does um, resident-centered care look like, what does high-quality care look like, what does a healthy, competent, resilient workforce look like. And the key is, is that we really start with a basis that this is what care should look like, and it needs to be properly funded, it needs to be properly accountable, it needs to have proper enforcement around it to make these standards come to life. And we talk about the fact that these issues of for-profit, not-for-profit, more importantly, the fact that we grossly underfund the system, those things are problems 
that will undermine these standards. So we make that very clear in our opening statements that these are things that governments who ultimately have the power to do things have to actually consider if they actually want to enable what Canadians are telling us they want to need in long-term care. Uh, the draft standard looks at 10 areas of long-term care, which leads me to believe that this is going to be a modified application and much more diverse than what we have now. Yeah, because right now we, we do have an existing standard, um, which is uh, not as comprehensive. And I think this, with what we've seen during the pandemic, we realize there have been things that we haven't literally been explicit about, especially how we treat our frontline workers um, and how we need to recognize and support them to make sure that they feel well supported so that they'll actually want to come and work and actually stay in long-term care settings. The other aspect that we really focus on is this notion of resident-centered care, because ultimately we should be doing things that the residents want, including allowing them to live with risk if that's actually what they want. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Dr. Samir Sinha. He is the chair of a committee that's looking into the National Long-Term Care Services Standard for our long-term care facilities in this country. Your, your committee received thousands of responses for input, which shows us just how ge- engaged people are in this process. Absolutely. We had over 18,000 Canadians participate first in an inaugural survey. And then over the fall, what we did was we, we did consultations, town halls, because we asked people to, you know, we said, you've raised a lot of good points, but we really want to get to the heart of this. Things like saying that, um, you know, we, we talk about the, the, the rights of an individual, but how do you think about the rights of a collective? And how do you think about, for example, the fact that long-term care homes are also places where people live and work? So trying to make sure that we, we really understand the nuance of these environments, because when you don't understand what we really need to do or what care really needs to look like, it just means that we undermine uh, what we are trying to accomplish in these settings. Dr. Samir Sinha, our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, the Technical Committee Chair of the Health Standards Organization, which is putting together the National Long-Term Care Services Standard. Uh, the feedback in this process began yesterday. It rolls along until late March. What happens after that? Well, after that, uh, what we do is uh, we t- we have to, we're required by the federal government to look at every single comment we receive and demonstrate what we are doing with those comments. For example, we're asking people right now, did we get the contents right? What are we missing? And could we improve what we're saying to make it more actionable? And what other evidence or guidance should we put there so that anybody, any family member, any resident, any worker looking at these things says, I get what why this statement is important, and this is actually how I can enable it. So anybody who wants to participate can go to our website, www.longtermcarestandards.ca, and, and give their, and we really, really, really want to hear from everybody because, frankly, we want to get this right. The first few months of the COVID-19 pandemic really uncovered some uh, atrocities, for lack of a better term, in our long-term care facilities in this province. Will there be any penalties associated in this standard for those facilities who don't follow these standards? Well, this is what we want, you know, the federal, provincial and territorial governments to look at, right? We're saying we're going to develop the standards. We're going to say what care needs to look like. But as we know, you know, our Ontario government released new legislation and they made a big deal about how we're doubling, you know, the, the, the level of fines if you violate the act. But this government has never actually applied a fine during this entire pandemic. So the key is it's you know, we are going to write down what needs to be done and get that right. But really, it'll take political will. It'll take funding. It'll actually take 
you know, a spine, if you will, to make sure that these standards are what we're going to do. Because frankly, we've lost 16,000 people now across Canada in long-term care and retirement home settings. Um, and if that doesn't get people saying this is what we're going to enforce to improve quality of care, I don't know what will. Yeah, those uh, f- uh, fatality numbers in our long-term care facilities proves that those in those settings are the most vulnerable uh, to uh, contract and and die from COVID-19. Uh, we all uh, know of this new sub-variant of Omicron, the BA2. Is, is that a concern at this time? It is a concern because now if you look at countries like Denmark or South Africa, it has now become the dominant variant. And the latest evidence is showing because it is a bit more transmissible, it may be a bit more infectious, for example, that the risk is there that um, you, if you've had Omicron, um, you might get this new Omicron as well. So this is the key that this stuff you know, could go on for a long time, and it's just keeping these settings vulnerable So how do we actually have the right standards of care in place so these places don't become um, just nightmare scenarios for people to live and work in? One last question regarding the standard. When will it officially be put in place or what's the goal? Yep. So um, we're on track right now uh, to have it finalized by December. It really depends on the number of comments and the other things we get back so that we can actually then uh, get back to work so that we can actually um, uh, finalize it based on what Canadians tell us what they want. So we really, really want to hear from everyone in Hamilton, everybody in Ontario, everyone in Canada, because we want to get this right. Where can people supply their uh, input? Yep. Again, it's uh, www.com longtermcarestandards.ca. Excellent stuff. Dr. Sinha, thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. Dr. Samir Sinha, Technical Committee Chair, Health Standards Organization, developing this National Long-Term Care Services Standard. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There's a local group supplying the province with temperature-stable storage mediums for PCR testing. It sounds rather technical, so here to break it down is Peter Calra, the President and CEO of Bay Area Health Trust, and John Hans, the Director of Bay Area Health Trust. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Very well. Uh, Bay Area Health Trust, Peter, we'll start with you, uh, is going to supply Ontario Labs with its McMaster Molecular Medium, the Triple M, a uh, critical component, I understand, of PCR testing. So how have you been able to do this? Yeah, thanks, Rick. So um, this McMaster Molecular Medium, if I can call it MMM so early in the morning, uh, came out of, not surprisingly, McMaster. Um, And this is the tube that the swab goes into after a sample has been taken. And it's really important because that's what keeps the sample viable until it can get to the lab and then the lab can, can do its work. So if you think of all of the, you know, for, for a while we were doing 50,000 tests a day. So that's 50,000 swabs and 50,000 tubes. Um, and we were able to commercialize the technology that came out of McMaster and send it into the Ontario labs. So this McMaster molecular medium, is it like a storage unit? Is it a warehouse? What does it look like? Oh, it's actually a, a storage solution. So um, that's the, 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 the swab goes way back into the edge of your brain and it comes out and then you'll see it often on, on TV where they put it into that little tube. Mm-hmm. And that, that tube is filled with a liquid. And that liquid came out of the researchers at St. Joe's and, and McMaster. And that actually came came out uh, when they were looking at it back in the fall of 2019, two years ago. Um, and a lot of that that fluid was coming actually from Italy. And Italy at that time was shut down. So they saw the supply 
chain troubles at that point and came up with the solution that eventually came into McMaster Molecular Medium. So is this solution different from anything else? Yeah, it, it is different, actually. Um, it actually uh, kills the virus, the coronavirus. So it's a lot safer for those people lab techs who've been working incredibly hard so when they open up the vial and, and and put the vial onto the machines to get the testing we won't get you know those workers won't get infected way back when in, in the SARS what they realized is that a lot of people who got SARS were actually the lab techs working with the samples so this molecular medium kills the virus allows it to be transported safely allows it to be tested safely and then we're not you know, getting more people sick as a result of just trying to do a good thing. So if uh, I'm just picturing, you know, a family at home doing all of this kind of testing, would that solution be in those test kits as well? Not in the in the test kits that went with the, the school kids. Okay. Um, these are the ones that are going, you know, if um, if you went down to the assessment center, the West End or the, and the East End assessment center, um, that's the, the tubes that were there were the ones that you were uh, using the McMaster molecular medium. So does this uh, Triple M help testing capacity at all? That it does too. We, we know that capacity is, was and, and will remain an issue. Um, and the scientists that developed it think that the labs are probably 30 to 50% more efficient. They can conduct 30 to, 30 to 50% more tests with uh, MMM. Peter Calra is our guest, President and CEO of Bay Area Health Trust. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about a uh, temperature-stable storage medium for PCR testing. It is the McMaster Molecular Medium. How many people had their hands in developing this uh, this solution? Oh, <laughs> a, a, a lot of hands, and I would say a lot of noses, because the amount of sampling that that uh, that happens uh, to, to, to get this up and, and going was um, huge. But it, the scientists at, at St. Joe's, uh, the Research Institute at, at St. Joe's, um, they came, you know, they worked hard. Dr. David Bueller and, and his lab um, were really working ahead and seeing these supply troubles. Then it came over to, to us that had to do, you know, some of the patent work and some of the legal work. And uh, we're working with Health Canada right now to, to get it um, more formally approved so we can use it beyond just COVID. And then it's all the, the people in the, the lab that, that use it. And so, Rick, that's a fantastic question. I wouldn't even know how many people uh, have contributed to make this the success that it is. We'll just say a lot. Uh, and a lot. I, I would assume that the McMaster molecular medium is not just being used in Hamilton. This is province-wide? This is province-wide. Yeah, we, we work with, um, there's an organization called the um, Shared Health Labs um, that are out of Toronto and support all the, the Toronto labs, plus the, the wide GTA region. Um, and we've we've had some interest from small hospitals in, in uh, northern Ontario because, again, it adds that level of safety uh, for the lab technicians. So this is used across Ontario. It's a made-in-Ontario solution used across Ontario. That's phenomenal. I understand you're looking for FDA approval in the U.S. as well. Why so? Well, again, if you, if you look at what's going on in, in the States, um, it's a it's a still a lot of people need to get tested, are getting tested. Um, it's a solution that, that can help their labs. And so we think, again, can we export a made-in-Ontario solution? I think we should be able to. We have the volume, and I think that's the right thing to do. 
Phenomenal uh, Made in Hamilton story, and it's doing a lot of great in our community and beyond. Peter, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. No troubles. Thank you. Peter Calora, president and CEO of the Bay Area Health Trust. And uh, again, the local science community, the local research community, uh, at the forefront, again, of the COVID-19 pandemic, whether it's viral vector lab testing or uh, COVID testing components or this McMaster molecular medium solution that um, helps PCR testing, helps capacity, moves things along, gets us to hopefully one day soon a much better place. Uh, the local research community has been phenomenal in uh, in the battle against COVID-19. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. This year's provincial election campaign be waged primarily online. Sabrina Nanji is the founder of Queen's Park Observer and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Sabrina. Good morning. How big uh, of a factor is the online world going to be in this year's election? We know that it's been used for years now in terms of drumming up support, getting people's attention. Is it going to be maybe bigger than ever come this uh, this June? Yeah, I mean, I think with a lot of things, you know, thanks to COVID, uh, there's things are not going to be, you know, what what we're expecting. Um, we've already got some of the campaigns, you know, uh, boosting their their virtual outreach uh, because of the Omicron wave right now. Um, I've talked to the Liberals and the NDP, you know, they, they were door knocking before. They've totally stopped that. You know, they're hitting the phones, um, emailing people, trying to reach them that way. The Conservatives, you know, they've been door knocking, but they're saying they're following all these public health restrictions. I think, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to get... Uh, a lot more digital campaign campaigning, um, but that's not going to take away from the traditional stuff. You know, we might not see the the kissing babies. Uh, they might be doing that two feet away, <laughs> but they're still going to have the buses uh, that we're used to. You know, us reporters will get to, to hop on, you know, um, follow the leaders around. Uh, but, you know, right now it feels like a very touch and go situation. No one really knows what the situation is going to look like. Um, you know, there's even buzz that the election could be posted Bones, just depending on how um, the situation is with the pandemic. So a lot of uncertainties right now. But, you know, the campaigns, they 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 have a, this June 2nd date for now scheduled election. Um, they're going to have to adapt like a lot of us are because of the pandemic. Because the online world is so vast, how much more difficult is it going to be for these political parties, these leaders to grab people's attention? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I I'm scrolling a lot every day. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to you know to get get through and sift through all of this stuff. You know, how do you kind of reach um, a voter? I think uh, we're, we're going to see some some creative stuff. Obviously, uh, you know, uh, Facebook, Twitter, social media. I, there's a lot of politicians on TikTok now. You know, maybe uh, I've seen a few new Democrats who tend to attract younger voters. Um, they've been all over uh, TikTok making videos over there. Uh, you know, it, it's it's a matter of whether this is going to translate into actual, you know, votes at, at the polls, I think is going to be the, the interesting thing um, from my perspective. I, I think, uh, 
what we had seen in 2018 was a bit more of the digital uh, side of campaigning, you know, play a part. We have Ontario Proud, you know, the the controversial meme machine that, you know, was out there and they, they took credit for, you know, defeating Kathleen Wynne. I think we could talk about that for hours and, you know, what, what led to the Liberals getting decimated in the last election. Um, uh, you know, Ontario Proud has been has been kind of quiet this time around. Um, but I think we're going to see a lot more groups like that, you know, some fun, some fun memes, stuff that, you know, sticks out in your head. I think uh, it's not going to uh, be, the, be the only thing that campaigns are, are doing, but, uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out and if they can actually get people, you know, to show up at the voting booth in person uh, and, uh, you know, actually cast their ballot for them. We only got about 30 seconds. Do you think the online campaigning is going to replace campaign signs? No, I don't think that that will happen. I mean, I know that, you know, the parties are already kind of getting this stuff printed. Uh, You know, it's uh, if if you're supporting a politician, you know, it's one way to kind of wear it on your sleeve, I guess, as opposed to just just doing things online. Um, I think we'll still see those signs around. Uh, You know, there's obviously rules of when they can go up. But I think in a couple of in a couple of weeks, you know, it's not that far away that we'll start to see these these signs go on the lawns and uh, maybe give us an indication of how that neighborhood's feeling. Sabrina, appreciate your insight on this. Thanks for the time and enjoy your weekend. Thanks so much. Happy Friday. Sabrina Nanji, founder of the Queen's Park Observer, joining us. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A big time teaming up between Tim Hortons and Special Olympics is at hand. And what they have created is a special donut. Oh, they had me at donut. Sharon Ballenbach is the CEO of Special Olympics and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning. How are you? I'm fantastic, and I'm fantastic because there's a new donut available with proceeds (laughs) helping the Special Olympics. Tell us about this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have partnered. uh, Tim Hortons is a longtime partner of Special Olympics Canada, and we're partnering on this Choose to Include Donut campaign. And uh, starting today... Through till Sunday, Canadians all across the country at their local Tim Hortons can pick up a Choose to Include donut, and uh, 100% of the proceeds from the donut sales donated directly back to Special Olympics Canada for our community sport program. That's awesome. So the donut is called Choose to Include. What's the message behind it? Yeah, you know, I think... um, one of the things that we re- really value about our partnership with Tim Hortons is that we, we both really share this belief that, um, you know, about values around diversity and inclusion. And, uh, you know, for Special Olympics, that's about including uh, individuals with an intellectual disability in sport. That's our mission. And, uh, you know, through that, our athletes who participate in our programs gain all kinds of skills that are, are valuable, not only in sport, but outside of sport. And so, you know, we're proud to partner with Tim Hortons to really uh, embrace and embody those values of diversity and inclusion. And that's what the Choose to Include Donut is all about. Any of our listeners tuning in right now making a Tim's run, the Choose to Include Donut on sale today through to Sunday. 100% of the proceeds will support Special Olympics Canada. It is a chocolate cake ring donut with white fondant, uh, colored sprinkles, and whipped topping. Um, so yeah, there's that. Um, so as you mentioned, this is, this is a, well, this is a fundraiser. What is the goal? Do you have a dollar amount in mind? Well, um, you know, last, uh, uh, the last time we did a Choose to Include Donut campaign was 2019. And unfortunately the last couple of years, we, we haven't been able to do it. 
Uh, and in 2019, we raised uh, just over $149,000. And that was with a one-day campaign. And so we're now looking at three days this time. Uh, so we're super excited. We really are hoping that we far exceed that uh, 149K that we did in 2019. That's awesome. What is the money going to be used for? Well, Special Olympics um, provides programs for athletes with an intellectual disability, and, and the heart of what we do are, are daily sport programs that happen, you know, in communities across the country, you know, big cities, small towns. It's that soccer program on Tuesday night, the swim club on Saturday, you know, the curling program on Wednesday. And uh, proceeds from this donut will go directly to support those community-based uh, sport programs uh, that happen in 18 different sports in summer and winter. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Sharon Ballenbach, the CEO of Special Olympics Canada. We're chatting about a new partnership between Special Olympics and Tim Hortons. They've created a new Choose to Include fundraising donut where 100% of the proceeds will support Special Olympics Canada on sale from today through to Sunday. I did not realize there were more than 41,000 Special Olympic athletes across this country that is a lot of people yeah we're really proud of that and and you know actually prior to uh prior to the pandemic we were on a trajectory of, of great growth and so uh you know we're we're super excited our focus right now and this is a, a this campaign is a great sort of launch to that you know our our main priority now uh through pandemic and as we hopefully get nearer to uh you know getting able to get back onto the field of play is to really recover and rebuild and, and regroup as an organization. And so we want to get athletes back on the playing field. Um, you know, individuals with intellectual disabilities have been disproportionately infected by the pandemic and, you know, been away from their peers. Uh, you know, Special Olympics provides a great network for our athletes that's really important to them. And so we're excited about this campaign. We're excited about the hope of getting back on the field of play and, and getting athletes back into what they love to do. Throughout this uh, pandemic, uh, two years now into it, we've heard from a number of businesses and organizations on how they've pivoted during uh, this this time. What has that looked like at Special Olympics? Yeah, I think for us, you know, similar to probably, you know, what others had to learn and, uh, you know, put together sort of on the fly, as, as, you, as, you, as you can imagine, uh, you know, most of our, our programs across the country switched to virtual. And, you know, maybe that obviously wasn't playing soccer virtually, but it was focused on fitness and activity and some, you know, uh, fitness challenges that athletes could do at home with limited equipment and, just keeping athletes connected and active. And, and some of that was social too, you know, just having some social calls by bringing people who've been isolated together to just connect and, and you know, sh still share in that community um, of Special Olympics that is so important. And so, you know, we delivered programs in a virtual capacity and, uh, you know, had great pickup by athletes who, who really wanted to stay connected to their Special Olympics family. What was the response like? Were there some challenges? Were there some great success stories? What can you tell us? Yeah, we did. Uh, you know, one of the great success stories of our organization is, uh, you know, our, our, you know, not just our athletes who are amazing, but our volunteers. And, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier that we have 41,000 athletes registered across the country. Well, we have 20,000 plus volunteers. And all of those community-based sport programs that I speak to are run by volunteers. 
And so we had some amazing stories of volunteers who, you know, they were missing the Special Olympics activity as much as their athletes and so took initiative to, you know, start programs and run little fitness workouts from their home uh, virtually that their athletes could still join and be a part of. And so lots of amazing stories of volunteers still stepping up through the pandemic uh, you know, and giving so graciously of their time and their talents and their passion. Um, and lots of interesting things. We did a walk around the world challenge where we had our athletes tracking, um, you know, number of steps and number of kilometers. And we, it originally started as a walk across Canada and, and our athletes tackled that in no time. So we switched to a walk around the world. And, uh, you know, along the way, uh, many other athletes from other Special Olympics athletes from other countries joined along in. And so it was a, a really unique and, and fun challenge that we had through the pandemic. That's awesome. Pick up your shoes to include fundraising donut. Heck, get a dozen. They're on sale from today to Sunday. 100% of the proceeds will support Special Olympics Canada. Sharon, really appreciate the time today. Best of luck with the campaign. And we'll soon be cheering on our Special Olympians uh, come next year in Berlin and uh, in Russia as well. Yes, yeah. Thank you so much for having us on and really encourage, uh, you know, your listeners to get out and get a donut and please post it on social. We'd love to see the photos of uh, everyone enjoying their donuts and uh, choosing to include. Sounds like a plan. Thanks, Sharon. Thanks. Have a great day. You too, Sharon Ballenbach, CEO, Special Olympics Canada. Yeah, go visit your nearest Tim's and uh, grab some choose to include donuts. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.